Hello and welcome to the Mustn't Grumble podcast. I'm Ian Moore, a comedian and author, and this is my attempt for the first time in my life to try and see the positives of life, the sunny side. I'm going to try and tweak the nose of pessimism and ruffle the feathers of downbeat. Well, that's the idea anyway. This is episode two and this is proving harder than I imagined it would. The point behind the podcast, like I say, insofar as there is one point beyond obviously rampant self-regard, is to try and grasp the good things in life, the things that make you sigh or melt inside with that slow-burning realisation that maybe, just just maybe, things aren't as bad as you think they are, or professionally in my case, that they aren't as bad as you like to paint them. I'm not saying there aren't positives all around, but they're either mostly hiding, sometimes in plain sight, or they're fleeting and difficult to hang an entire episode on, so you find yourself looking for the grand ideas rather than just acknowledging the minutiae, and that's where the problem with mental health lies, I think. There's there's rarely the big fix, the one cleansing idea that sweeps away the darkness, throwing open your psyche's curtains to reveal the sunlit uplands. It really is the little things, and that doesn't mean clutching at straws either, it's just taking a small number of good things to make one big better one. Clutching at straws, by the way, is not a popular phrase around here at the moment. There was a bloke down the road who seemed to have set up some kind of shanty town on a narrow patch of land. It had a caravan, lots of pallets, a bizarre pergola thing, and dozens of goats. Well, the poor man was literally downed by clutching at straws as a hay bale fell on him and killed him, presumably leaving his feet sticking out underneath like the Wicked Witch in The Wizard of Oz. And I know you're not supposed to find this kind of thing amusing, and of course it's tragic, but, you know, with a world cowering in corners and terrified to go outside, the idea of somebody managing to die by hay bale really is too good to miss. I wonder if he was wearing his mask for protection. That would be the irony. Anyway, all the goats were removed somewhere else, and then a few days later, just one small billy goat emerged from the the literal wreckage on the site, and he's still there, months later, gambling around his private terrain, clearly quite happy with life. Now, I have goats. I know goats well, and I have a sneaking suspicion that this little billy goat planned the whole thing. Believe me, that's exactly the kind of thing goats do. Anyway, I digress. The little things. Lots of little good things add up to make one good big thing in the same way that lots of little bad things can do the opposite. I've used this analogy before but my mental state is often a precarious game of psychological buckaroo. Little things get piled on top of one another, a cumbersome badly arranged attempt to carry too much around, more than you can cope with, some of it not your own, until every so often you kick out and drop the whole lot. The kicking out in whatever form it takes is however a form of self-protection, only you start then reloading it all again soon after, even though you know that the exact same thing will inevitably happen again. Small comforts, that's what we need then, little little jigsaw puzzle sizes of contentment that we can make into a larger, clearer, happier picture. Now I'm well aware at this point that I sound like a snake oil salesman or some contemptible evangelist preacher about to give you the number to a donation hotline. There's probably an element of that too, but I found it quite addictive in the past few weeks to make a note of the little things, sometimes very little good things that have happened, and just reading that list makes me smile. Take one, <coughs> excuse me, take one on that list for example, Pontifract cakes. Okay, now 
Pontifract cakes are never going to completely wipe away the weight of chronic illness, a global pandemic, the lurch towards right-wing mayhem, and that my kids will struggle to find work in a post-apocalyptic dystopian future unless work is somehow defined as how to secure a bargain transfer on FIFA, which I doubt. But Pontifract cakes are a start. I should explain for the uninitiated just exactly what Pontifract cakes are. They're licorice sweets, basically, small and round, originally produced in the Lancashire town of Pontefract, near where I was born in Blackburn. The best way to describe their appearance is that they look like the wax seal on a restoration scroll, only they're black. They also taste a lot sweeter than most licorice sweets and get stuck in your teeth, and for me, are a borderline addiction. They're also, sadly, virtually impossible to get hold of here in France. I wouldn't say that I was getting withdrawal symptoms, I don't think I'm... I'm that affixed to anything, but occasionally the thought of them crops up and I get a hankering. Bassets or the blasted Haribo. I mean, seriously, what have Haribo done to Tangfastics? Neither of those come even nearly close on the licorice scale. Only proper Pontifract cakes will do. There's something about food, especially, I think, that can evoke warm memories, that can take you back to a time when you were content but probably didn't even realise it. Sunday roasts made by your gran, a bag of vinegary chips shared on a teenage date, the excitement, the trepidation you felt the first time you ate a meal abroad, a midnight snack. Now, of course, sometimes these things become over-romanticised in the shimmering whirlpool of nostalgia, but I swear that my mum once made a baked Alaska so frighteningly, horrifyingly, goddamn awful that it still sits in front of Stalin in Madame Tussaud's horror chamber. And not a wax copy either, the original. When you're living abroad, like here in rural France, some comfort food, or at least food you grew up with, becomes almost mythical, and the need to have it like a biblical quest. Those little crumbs of the, the old home, of youth, of rarely seen old friends. I wouldn't ever want to class myself in the, in the Brits abroad, brigade some of the ones that live in areas of spain eating their english breakfast reading their english papers in their english pubs moaning about how immigrants refuse to integrate but you have to be honest with yourself at times and for all my highfalutin ideals about being an economic migrant which i am rosé is so much cheaper here as opposed to being an expat i don't half need my fix of basic english food stuff at times Lancashire cheese for instance wholemeal baps proper water-based bread and fish testicles stuffed cheap sausages things like that in the early days of living in france such as a state of my don't ask what they're made of sausage withdrawal symptoms as opposed to the high quality meat-filled and therefore guiltless french varieties that i attempted to make my own it did not go well i went to the butchers to buy some some sausage skins and was interrogated as to what why i needed them when I explained why and what I was doing with them, I was greeted with, uh, so, French sausages aren't good enough for you, are they not? I tried to explain that they were actually too good, but that's not a culinary concept that the French could easily grasp. I eventually got the skins, made the sausages, and they obviously just weren't the same. I mean, where, where do you even buy the kind of stuff that goes into a cheap English sausage? Short of raiding the local aquarium or just sweeping up the floor of the chicken coop, it just wasn't something I could recreate. Up until the pandemic hit, I'd drive back to the UK about four times a year and just stock up on exactly the kind of things the medical profession are trying to get banned from being advertised on TV. 
But even if I could travel now, and I'll have to do a whole episode on why I don't want to do that, sausages or no sausages, I wouldn't be able to bring back the kind of food stuff that I want anyway. It's the reality of Brexit. You can't export certain British goods anymore, but the UK is forced to import all those British immigrants in Spain that I was talking about and elsewhere, obviously, who voted for Brexit thinking freedom of movement only worked in one direction. I'm going to interrupt myself here. Of all the things that have caused depression, at times even fear, certainly severe anxiety over the last few years, it is the utter blind stupidity, lying, bullying and obvious narrow greed of Brexit. And that's not Project Fear, that's Project Bloody Reality. And now, what's worse than that, and a direct consequence of this national midlife crisis, I can't even get hold of crumpets. It was crumpets that started me looking for the positives in all this. I'll come back to the Pontefract cakes in a bit, but crumpets were the catalyst. Just before Christmas, I was contacted by a man called Thierry. Until he retired, Thierry was the town policeman here, the gendarme of the police municipale. I knew him to say hello to pass the time of day in the, in the boulangerie queue and so on. And I knew he was an Anglophile anyway, and he could talk at length about his love of the London black cab. What I didn't know also was that his love of the British meant that he also had a certain penchant for Bristol cream sherry, an expensive brand of haggis and especially crumpets. And he rang me, presumably using previous contacts to find my number, and asked if I was going back to England any time soon. Well, I was. Not for gigs, obviously. I hadn't done a live gig since, since last March, but I was going back to the UK just before Christmas to buy a car. For various reasons, left-hand drive cars are cheaper if bought in the UK. Second-hand cars in France are ridiculously overpriced anyway. But I had to buy one before the end of 2020, because from the 1st of January and Britain's oven-ready half-baked deal would kick in, I'd be stung for import duties. Plus, it would mean a huge amount of increased paperwork, and I haven't got time for that anymore. I was also going back to the UK to pick Samuel up. My eldest son had been living in the UK for about 18 months, a gap year extended and subsequently ruined by the pandemic. Now that will also be probably a subject for a later episode, I reckon, just how badly all this has affected young people. As someone who's middle-aged, I can look back on my teenage years with increasing fondness, increasingly rose-tinted spectacles, no doubt too, but the freedom, the going out, the snogging, all the things teenagers are supposed to do that this generation can't. At times, when I'm down, my teenage memories carry me a bit. Today's kids aren't going to have that mental life raft, and that's, that's terribly sad. To paraphrase a character in the film Radio Days, all of this isn't so bad for us. Our lives are ruined already. Samuel and I got back to France just two hours before they shut the border, just before Christmas. We were in a new car and it was full of crisps, bread rolls, Sainsbury's gammon joints, Christmas crackers, dandelion and burdock drink, curly whirlies, wine gums and shit but magnificent sausages. It also had a shed load of high rent haggis, a vat of crystal cream and more crumpet than a carry-on film. Happy days indeed, a father and son road trip for the ages. But it was the last one. I knew... Thierry would call as soon as his crumpet stash was finished and he rang just before Easter. He asked me forlornly if I was going back to England and he knew the answer but maybe he thinks I'm more important than I am. I've run out of crumpets, he said, 
it was really sad. Out of all the things in life that could be thrown at him, this would seem to be the very end for him. I've even rung Marks and Spencers in Paris, he said, and they haven't got any either. It was such a morose, it was a brief conversation, but so morose. The lack of crumpets was something so simple, so apparently meaningless. But they're the things that, like I was saying, caused the most damage. It was it was the final plastic shovel on the back of the buckaroo mule. Thierry's travails had also hidden another loss, but this time, much closer to home, hot cross buns. I'd become so wrapped up in the whole crumpet debacle, I'd given no thought to Natalie's annual Easter time hot cross bun fix. And that, believe me, is a serious fix. None of the We Send British Goods Abroad online shops could help because bakery goods like cheese, tin red salmon and pims now being subject to the new self-defeating head-up-its-own-ass Global Britain. I think a few months ago I'd have just chalked it up as a defeat. What can I do, I'd have thought. That's the world, another of life's little luxuries lost for no bloody good reason. But, and like I say, partly because of starting this list of positives... I've thought about making my own hot cross buns. Now, I'm no baker. I've never watched Great British Bake Off or Le Meilleur Pâtissier, its French equivalent, and jokes about soggy bottoms bore me. I'm a half-decent cook, though, largely because I love the discipline of a recipe. Recipes tell you what to do. They have an order and a list of specifics that you can get lost in, to the extent, I find, that they can drown out the noise, you know, the extraneous non-recipe thoughts. A complicated ingredient-heavy, weights-and-measures-specific recipe is an oasis of mental calm, a locked room that can't be penetrated by the crap that's inevitably going on outside. So I found the most complicated hot cross bun recipe I could find, and I made a batch for Natalie. Now, they didn't look perfect, not by any means. Some of the crosses, because of my amateurish use of the icing piping tool, looked suspiciously like swastikas, as though I was catering for the Munich Putsch. And yes, they were quite heavy. So heavy, in fact, that if Jesus had eaten one, uh, there'd have been little chance of a resurrection, let me tell you that. But they hit the spot. Natalie was happy. She appreciated the gesture. I was happy that she was happy. And I'd lost myself for a few hours. And that's what comfort food can do. Food laden with good memories. Which brings me back to Pontefract Cakes. There's a small shop in Tours, which is the largest city near here, and it used to be an English-language bookshop, but, as is the way of the world, it now sells English and American sweets instead. I dip in from time to time, but really, there's not much that I, that I don't already have or can you know I can find elsewhere. Then, in the corner of the shop, I saw this pile of Pontefract cakes, like a, like a shimmering apparition of pure, innocent good. They looked magnificent. But why Pontefract cakes? So, here's the story. When I was eight, I went into hospital to have an operation because of, uh, shall we say, an issue. I had to have a circumcision, a medical circumcision. I think that's why I've always had an affinity with Jewish humour. Anyway, it was obviously very uncomfortable. The hospital was miserable, I was miserable, and the post-op discomfort was, was no picnic either. My parents were there when I woke up from the anaesthetic. And I remember my dad was wearing a green velvet sports jacket and he'd shaved off his moustache, which was the only time in his life I've ever seen him without a moustache. I don't know whether he'd done it in solidarity at my plight. I have no idea. 
Anyway, they were there when I woke up, and they, they both stood there. They looked quite nervous-looking, and we all were, obviously. And they said, look, here. And they handed me a package, which... They, you know, they've obviously brought me something to cheer me up. And I opened it, tired and in pain as I was. All children love a present. And inside this wrapped gift, and I'm not making this up, my present in some kind of consolation for circumcision was the LP version of Abba's Voulez-Vous album and a small packet of Pontefract cakes. I honestly don't know what possessed them. I mean, what was the thinking behind it? Hello, son, we know you've had to part with a fair portion of your penis, but here's some Euro disco pop and geographically specific sweetmeats to take your mind off things. I think in the annals of parental gifts to children, it has to be one of the most ill-judged, non-thought-out, non-sequiturs in history. Almost anything else I could think would take my mind off that operation instead i can't now hear abba without wincing and feeling slightly nauseous and have an obsession bordering on addiction to pontifract cakes is there a bright side to this is what you're asking well yes of course there is one it's a great anecdote for me in my line of work and proves the theory that comedy is really just tragedy plus time a lot of tragedy a lot of time but there's a bit of laughter too laughter and nazi themed hot cross buns once again, thanks very much for listening. I'll post a new episode every couple of weeks, all about 10 to 15 minutes long, as a kind of hopefully cheering mental exercise program. I don't know, just something to smile about. Many thanks for all the people who got in touch after the first episode. It's pleasing, really, really pleasing to know that it touched the nerve. But also that you needn't feel alone or that you have to keep things bottled up you really don't if you want to get in touch or if you have any suggestions of what makes you happy what makes you warm inside or keeps you going please email me at mustn'tgrumblepod at gmail.com mustn'tgrumblepod at gmail.com thanks again i'll see you in a couple of weeks <laughs>